Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. It is very good to be with you this morning. It's great. I know preachers often stand up and say that, standard opening. But I mean it. There was a COVID scare in my family on Friday, and it was a good chance I might have been preaching to you from my uh, sitting room. But I'm actually here in person, so I can face up to real people. It just shows that we're not quite out of the woods yet, are we? There's still a few things that we're having to deal with, and still a few things to work through. But there we go. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're going to continue our journey through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And today I'm going to be looking at Luke 6 and verse 27. Now, these verses will be very familiar to you. As soon as you get there, you'll go, oh yeah, know those. These verses are so familiar that they're known by many non-Christians. Matter of fact, they're so familiar that some of these phrases have now entered into our culture. Not only our culture, but world culture. I've been in international meetings where I've heard someone say, turn the other cheek, and everyone in the room understood, despite the fact they were multiracial, multicultural. They appreciated what was being said. Um, But like a lot of things that are familiar, they often get misunderstood. So let's take a a fresh look at them. We're looking at uh, Luke 6 and verse 27. So whatever media you're using, if you want to, uh, to turn there along with me, let's have a look at this. So here Jesus is teaching his disciples specifically. There's a whole crowd of people listening, but he's talking primarily to the disciples. And we we see that he's been training them and spending time with them. He's selected them to be apostles, and he's now upping the ante. He's not just talking to them generally as a crowd. He's talking to these guys specifically. And now he says, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who will ill-treat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Like I said, those verses are very familiar. And we can say, oh yeah, I know that, I've heard that. And I remember very, very clearly the first time I heard those verses. I remember it so clearly. It's one of my strongest memories. I was about six or seven years old. And I was in the chapel, Sunday school at Bethesda Chapel at Merthyrmau Street, where I grew up. And there was a lovely lady teaching on that. And I remember thinking, oh, right, okay. And you think, why do you remember that? Well, the reason I remember it was that the neighborhood I grew up in wasn't particularly good. And I went to a kind of tough school. 
And there was a lot of stuff going on there, bullying and a lot of violence and a lot of trouble. And lo and behold, the week after I heard that, I became the target for the bullies. And I remember thinking, I can't hit them back. I must turn the other cheek. I must, I must hold, hold off, you know, I, mustn't, um, I, must, I must be good. Um, I think that lasted till Friday. And I snapped. And I fought back. And I laid the bully out. And two things came out of that. One is nobody bullied me for the next 10 years. For some reason, they decided to keep their distance and not pick on me. But more importantly, I actually thought, I can't be a Christian. I hit back. And in my naive mind, it was like, well, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I can't keep the rules. Now, I've recovered from that. I'm an adult. I know better. I know it's not about rules. But it was a big thing in my life. And it struck with me. And it's been with me all the way through. Um, again, it was a sort of misunderstanding and a misinterpretation, but that happens so often. So I think it's really important that we look at the context of these words and what Jesus was trying to say. So this is going to be difficult, but try and take ourselves back 2,000 years and get into the mindset of the audience that he was speaking to. It helps us to understand what he was trying to say. Now, this is very difficult because the majority of us here and the people listening to me are British. And British people have no concept of being ruled over. Yes, we have a parliament and we have a sovereign, but we have no concept of someone occupying your country, taking over everything, setting the rules, and telling you what you will and will not do and when you can and cannot do things. We don't get that. We don't even think about it. We're unaware of it. We've got an independence of spirit. It's been almost a thousand years since anybody broke into Britain, completely changed it, and said, this is the way we're now going to do it. And if you travel internationally or spend time with people in other cultures, you realize that's different. It's not always the same. And people look at British as being pretty awkward people at times, but that's an element of why. It's because we think like that. We've never been subjugated or put under an oppression. And I remember when I started work, I I used to travel quite a lot with my first job, and I'd end up in the Channel Islands, and it was quite interesting talking to people in the Channel Islands, because during the Second World War, they were occupied. That was the only part of Britain or the United Kingdom that was taken over, and it was occupied by the German forces. Now, there was no bad treatment, there was no really bad stuff going on, they weren't totally abused, but, but they were under German control. And what they could do, and when they could do it, was limited. Where you went, even the amount of food you had to eat was controlled by someone else who dictated to you what you did. And I can remember one of my colleagues who was um, much older than me um, telling me that he was a child at that time and he can remember being very miffed by the Germans throwing him out of his bedroom. What he meant was they they had to take in German soldiers and look after them and his mother had to feed them and do their laundry and they had his bedroom and he was thrown out. and when he said, I remember him telling me that when they'd left in 1945, when they'd left, he was free. And he said, not only did I get my bedroom back, but I was allowed out in the evening to go for a walk, which wasn't allowed. You know, he said, I was free. He said, I was still hungry. It was still tough. There were still problems, but we were free. And he said to me, you'll never understand this, but it's an oppression. It sits on you and weighs on you that you can't do things. Even if people aren't abusing you, it sits on you. That is the culture that these people were living in. These people, the 
Jews at this time were subject to Roman rule. Not only were they subject to Roman rule prior to that, they'd been subject to Greek rule. Matter of fact, for so long, they'd been subject to rule by somebody. Someone had dictated to them what would happen, how things would happen, and what the rules would be. And as a consequence of that, there was hatred. They hated the Romans. They just wanted to be free of them. They couldn't stand them. And they lived in a culture that was totally different to ours. It was a culture that was more violent. It had less appreciation of human life. It had less compassion and understanding. It was a totally different place. And they wanted a complete revolution to free themselves of it and do things their own way. Now, living under Roman rule was very simple. Compared to a lot of people who, a lot of organizations and cultures, the Romans were very straightforward. Wherever they went, wherever they took over, it was very simple. You can have your gods, you can have your culture, you can do things your own way, you can wear your own clothes, you can do all the things you want to do. But the rules are, do what we tell you to do, don't cause any trouble, pay us taxes. Fine, obey those rules, you can carry on as you want. Step out of line, you will be punished, it will be very hard, it will be violent, and will knock you back into shape. That's how the Romans did things. It was very much, do your own thing, don't cause trouble, and you won't be punished. By the way, if we want what you've got, we'll take it off you, and if we want you to do something, you've got to do it. That was the way it was. And that was how these people were living. They were living under that. And then Jesus comes along. And now there's a buzz about this new guy, new kid on the block. He's doing things. Things are happening. People are flocking to him. They hear him talking about the new kingdom. They hear him saying things that make them think, is he the Messiah? Is he the one who's going to come and lead the revolution? Because that's what they wanted. They wanted freedom. They wanted no more oppression. Is he the one who's going to come and lead us so we can rise up and we can kick the Romans out? And then Jesus speaks these words. What was their reaction? Well, it was shock, misunderstanding, confusion. And for a lot of his audience, they walked away. They just went, he's a nutter. He's just some hippie weirdo talking about loving people. It was a watershed teaching. A lot at this point, a lot of people started to leave Jesus. Because if you look at the history of, of what we know, he started off with a few people. He gathered a few more and a few more and a few more. Then he would end up with some large crowds. And then they start to tail off because the closer you got to him and the more you listened to him and the more you took on board what he said, the more difficult it was, the more radical it was. And the more and more people thought, no, I don't want that. And we know ultimately he ends up at the cross with no one. Totally deserted. But that's what was happening. This was what was going on here. We don't fully understand how radical his teaching is and how much of an affront it is to people to hear it. It was insulting to them to hear it. They didn't want to know it. Now, when you look at these words, they're very similar to the Beatitudes that you get in Mark, Matthew, rather. And people say, oh, it was Jesus repeating something, or maybe it was someone else repeating the same thing. Well, I would imagine, like many preachers and teachers, Jesus said the same thing many, many, many times in different places at different times, and altered the emphasis depending on the audience. And here he has upped the ante very much because he is talking to the disciples. 
He's saying, you're my apostles, you're going to follow me. And he's laying out to them what it's going to be like. When you're beaten up, don't fight back. Turn the other cheek. That would happen to him. They would see that happen to him. It would happen to many of them. When people take your belongings and take your clothes, that would happen to him. Before the cross, his clothes were taken away. They would go through the same experiences, you know. When people are mistreating you and abusing you, which they would, he was saying, be prepared for it. This is what we will go through. And how you react to this, how you deal with it, is vital. And what he was doing was he was contrasting the way of the world with the way of God. Because this wasn't just counter-culture. This wasn't Jesus countering the Jewish culture that they lived in. This is counter-human nature. This is completely going against what our natural reactions are, how the way we feel, how the way we behave. He was going completely against it. See, all societies, whatever their beliefs, were working on pretty much a similar basic rule, a rule of human nature. And it was, I can hardly say this word correctly, so I'll have a go, reciprocity. Basically, you get back what you do. You do something bad to me, I'll do something bad to you. You do something good for me, hmm, I'll do something good for you. It's a bit like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and let's not have a fight. You know, it's like that's how, that's how things work pretty much in their culture. And it's how human beings work, actually, isn't it? In our natural state, it's pretty much how we are. Unless we, something goes wrong, and then we will retaliate. We will hit back. Even that verse 37 is really radical, where he says, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Now, we just think, yeah, that's nice. Nice phrase. See it on fridge magnets and things like that. The power of those words at the time. Jesus is the first recorded person in history to say that positively. Because many cultures throughout uh, Europe and the Far East have something similar. But it actually is the complete reverse. It's the negative. It says, don't do bad things to others. They might do it to you. And you can pick that up in the Far East. You can pick it up in the Middle East. You can even pick it up in South American cultures. And then Jesus comes along and turns it into a positive and says, no, it's not a negative, it's a positive. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. He's turned it right on its head. He's spun it round and said, let's be positive about this. Not negative, positive. Behave completely differently. Stand out in the world. He's completely turning things on its head. Now, Again, we will struggle with this. One of the reasons we'll struggle is our language. It's the classic English word, love. He wasn't talking, well, he was talking about a specific kind of love. We use the word love to say, I love chocolate. I love to play football. I love my wife and kids. Now, I don't mean the same thing. I've used the same word, but I do not mean the same thing. And we do this all the time. The love we have for something we consume, to something we do or enjoy, to someone we feel about, they're completely different things. And what he was talking about here was agape. And that's a love that's non-emotional. It's not about how you feel, whether you've got a warm, fuzzy, glow feeling for someone, or you care about them, or they make you feel good. It's irrelevant. It's not about any of that. It's just about 
doing good. It's an action. It's about caring about the welfare of someone else. It's consideration of others. The best definition I've seen of it is actively seeking to do good by choice of will. So you make a decision to actively do something good. That's what he was talking about. So when he was saying, love your enemies, he wasn't saying, I want you to love them and adore them and cuddle them and have emotionally great feelings towards them. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, I want you to do good towards them. Even if that's through gritted teeth, I want you to do good towards them. Even if every sinew in your body wants to attack them and fight back and do retaliate, I want you to do good towards them. I want you to bless them. Sometimes we get this wrong because we think, oh, I've got to have nice, happy, warm feelings about someone that has really wound me up and has really been horrible to me. And the answer is, no, you don't. You don't have to have those emotional feelings. But it is good if you can find a way to bless them. It is good if you can find a way to be positive towards them, to do something for them. That's what Jesus was trying to say. That's what he was trying to get through to his people. It was about changing things, turning it on its head, not reacting in a normal way. And we can think, yeah, we're quite sophisticated people. You know, we've moved on from 2,000 years ago. We're not pagans anymore. You know, we're, not, we're not going around, even if we've got no religious beliefs, we don't go around doing all these horrible things. You know, we know better than that. Do we? Only a few weeks ago in the Middle East, Israelis and Arabs were knocking seven bells out of each other, killing each other. Why? Because they hate each other. Will they stop? No. Will they forgive each other? No. Because they are cult their human nature and their culture is, you hit me, I hit you. You hit me, I hit you harder. You do something horrible to me, I'll do something horrible to you and even worse. You know, and I've heard it said that, oh yeah, well Jews do that because their, their, their law says they're allowed to. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Well, that's actually misleading as well, because that's not what it was. God actually said, this is a law to stop you abusing other people. When he said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, he was saying, you can only punish to the degree of what the crime was. Not that you can go and kill someone because they hit you. It was like, no, you, you know, the law says you can only take it to a certain degree. But even that's been abused by our nature. We're not as sophisticated and as nice as we think we are. Our nature is not good. Our nature is dangerous. Our nature is violent. I, a number of years ago, I was working with a guy who was a British citizen, born in this country, but from um, his father was a Montenegrin, his mother was German. And so he had a, a Montenegrin surname. And at the time, the whole thing in the former Yugoslavia kicked off. Some of you will remember that, the Bosnian War and all that was going on. And I asked him, because culturally that was his background, could he explain it to me? And he went, I'll do my best. And he basically said, the Serbs hate the Croats, the Croats hate the Montenegrins, the Montenegrins hate the, the Herzegovinans, the Herzegovinans don't like the um, Slavs. He said, basically, there are eight races in this country that is Yugoslavia, and there are eight ethnic divisions and races and they all hate each other, and they all want to kill each other. And I said, why? And he said, I don't know. He said, I did ask my father, and I asked my grandfather, and they could not tell me. They just said, it goes back a long way. 
It's like there's institutional hatred and retribution. Why? Well, other than it's human nature, they've even forgotten why. That's, and that's in our world, just a short distance from here. And what Jesus was saying was that's not the way it's to be. We've got to go against our nature. Where you want revenge, you should bring blessing. Where you, you are so angry, you're bitter, you have to forgive. Where, in human words, there would be hatred, you have to turn it around and actually do something warm and loving. You have to do that. Because that's the example that Jesus set. That's the way he was. That is God's way of doing things. Completely counter our culture. Completely counter our instincts and the way we are. But the impact of that is huge. Absolutely huge. And I think that's what Jesus was getting to. The impact of how you react is incredible. If you lash out, that's what was expected. If you take some form of retribution, yeah, fair enough, why not? If you don't, it's often picked up more and has a bigger impact. I remember the story of a chap called Louis Zemperini. People are looking at me blank. Okay, I'll tell you the story. Very, I'll paraphrase the story, but I'll tell you the story about Louis. Um, Louis was born in the 1920s in the US, um, born the wrong side of the tracks, grew up as a, as a bad kid, ended up in a lot of trouble. But as he said, he was a good runner because he spent a lot of time running from the police. But one day they caught him and they said, you're a good runner, you should do athletics. So he ended up running without being, being chased which was quite good fun, and found he was quite a good runner. Then he found he could go to college, and he managed to work his way out of his background to such a degree that in 1936, he represented the USA at the Olympics. He was an Olympic athlete, and he was on the same team as people like Jesse Owens and people like that. And it was an amazing sort of thing, and he was a bit of a star. He was a name, and people wanted to be with him, and he was a sports personality. And he was quite young still and was told, in the 1940 Olympics, you're going to be a gold medalist. Because, you know, you're, you've done well in this one, in the next one, you're bound to be a gold medalist. You know, you're going to do really, really well. Well, the world changed. There was a war. So there was no 1940 Olympics. So Louis found himself in the United States Air Force on an airplane, and it was shot down, and he was captured, and he was taken prisoner by the Japanese. He then spent two and a half years in hell, being tortured and abused. And I won't say the things that happened to him. It was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. But he survived. And after the war, he found himself back in the United States as a survivor. But he wasn't right. He couldn't sleep. He had nightmares, he took to drink, he became an alcoholic, he became violent, he became desperate. Um, he found himself attacking his wife in his sleep with the nightmares. Um, he was in a terrible mess. I mean, now we know he had PTSD, he was suffering uh, like many people do. But he didn't know what it was and he was trying to deal with it and it wasn't working and it was getting worse. And the only thing that motivated him when he woke up every morning, 
was hatred. He said, I'm going to go back to Japan and I'm going to kill those people that did this to me. That was his motivation. That's what got him through the day. And then it got, in his own words, he said his life got worse because his wife got religion. His wife became a Christian. And she said, I won't leave you, but you've got to sort yourself out. You have got to sort yourself out. And she said, there's this guy in town called Billy Graham. You've got to come and hear him. And he's going, no. Anyway, she kept on at him. It took a week, but she got him there. And he lasted 10 minutes and he ran out. So the next night she got him back and he lasted 20 minutes and he ran out. Then he got him back the next night and he lasted 30 minutes and he ran out. And on the next night, some of us will know this experience. He said, in an audience of 100,000 people, Billy Graham spoke to him. And he said, if you're consumed by hatred and anger and it's destroying you, Jesus will set you free. And he said he found himself at the front and he was prayed for and he was freed and he went home and he slept. And he said to sleep with no nightmares, to get through the day with no alcohol. He said it was just amazing, incredible thing. Now because of who he was and he was a sports star and he was a name, the press got hold of it, it got hyped up. And Billy Graham asked us to meet him. He said, would you come and see me? So he ended up on a one-on-one -on -one with Billy Graham. And Billy Graham said to him, this is an amazing story. This is great. Will you tell people your story? And he said, I want you to join me and we'll travel. And I want you to tell people your story of your life and what God has done for you. And how you, you know, you've been freed, been released. And he Okay, yeah, I'll do it. So he did, and he traveled with Billy Graham, and he went around mostly the United States telling his story, and he would go into prisons and reform homes and all these institutions were, and he would talk to people about his life and what had happened, and many people responded when they came to Christ. It was great. But then he said God really challenged him because Billy Graham sat him down one day and said, do you fancy going to Japan? And he said, he violently reacted. He said, I can't go to Japan. I hate them. They tortured me. I hate them. I can't go near them. I don't want to kill them anymore. I'm over that. I, I, I'm clear of that. I'm not going there. I cannot go there. And Billy Graham just backed off and said, okay, you know, God will make it clear what he wants you to do when he wants you to do it. So he said he went back to his hotel room and he was relaxing and he'd forgotten the Japan experience. And then all of a sudden, someone knocks his hotel room door and he opens it. Yeah. And there's a lady standing there, and she said, are you Louis Zimprini? Yes. He said, I was praying, and God told me to come and see you. God says you're going to Japan. Here's $1,000. And walked away. And he was like, I'm not going to Japan. I'm going to give that money away. And then he said, hello, are you Louis Zimprini? Well, this went on and on and on, that people kept turning up. And he said, for the next week, wherever he went, out of the blue, people turned up and said, God has told me and gave him money. So he went back to Billy Graham and said, I don't know what to do. Billy Graham said, what do you think God is telling you to do? He said, I've got to go to Japan. He said, yep, I think you do. So he went to Japan against every sinew of his body, everything he didn't want to do. As he said, I don't want to kill him anymore, but I don't want to see him. I don't want to have any time with him. I don't want to meet them. 
but he found himself in Japan. And they said, we've got a preaching schedule for you. We'd like you to go to this, these places. Okay. And he found, oh, that's not too bad. I can do this. I can do this. And then he noticed on the schedule was the prison camp where he'd ended up. It was now a state prison. And in there were many of the guards and the people who had abused him. And so he found himself in there facing them. These were people who for years had abused him, did terrible things to him, and who he wanted to kill. And he said, I stood there, looked at them, and he said, I can't say I loved them, but I felt no malice to them. And I thought, I'm sorry for you. You need the gospel. And so he preached them. And many of them gave their lives to Christ. And as he said afterwards, that wasn't easy. That wasn't, you know, the Holy Spirit got me through that. That wasn't easy, but it was the right thing to do. And I'm so glad I've done it. And as his life went on, he did more and more and more of that. And he found out as time went on and he spent more time with them that he actually liked Japanese people. He actually liked their culture. He would go and spend time in their country. He would enjoy being with them. And God changed him. God moved him completely from where he was. Now, in the world's eyes, he was fully justified in his hatred. He was fully justified in wanting his revenge, wanting some form of retribution, wanting them to be punished. But he turned around. And that's how God works. God works through us. He works through his people. It's through the way we deal with things, the way we react, the way we behave. It's through our attitudes, how we live these things out. That's how God makes his way in the world. He does it through his people, by his people doing the unexpected. Jesus' words were so radical, so radical. And they're not easy. They're really, really, really difficult. Really difficult. Doing unto others as you want them to do unto you is fairly straightforward until you have to react to the negative. Until they have abused you or stolen from you or hurt you, then it's much more difficult. But it's still important that we get our hearts in the right place and that our attitude is right because that will then affect how we behave towards them. Um, someone asked me the other day what you were preaching on. And I briefly explained what it was because they couldn't be here. And they said, and, I, and I, I jokingly said, you could summarize it as sort of loving through gritted teeth. And they said to me, why don't you say that? And I'm like, what? Said, why don't you say that? Because that's really what it is at times for us. Going against our nature. Going against every instinct because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of the forgiveness that we have had the mercy that we have had. We need to be able to show it to others, however hard that might be. We need to turn things on, our, on its head completely. The story of the Good Samaritan is quite radical. We regard, I read it to my grandchildren a lot. They love it. They always come up, read this one, Grandad, read this one, Grandad. And it's a nice story. And, and yes, it's a good story. And it's about let's be kind to people. But we've lost how radical that story was. When Jesus told that story, that was an affront. A Samaritan, the enemy, 
If it had been a Samaritan beaten up at the road, any good Jew would have got served you right and walked off. But Jesus spun the story right round. It was the religious people who walked away and left the Jewish man. And it was the Samaritan, who they would expect would probably spit on him as he walked past, who actually was the kind one, who, was, who actually did the right thing. Jesus wasn't, when he was saying, yes, let's be nice to people, let's show kindness. Yes, he was. The radical part of that story was it was enemies doing it. Again, it was an affront. But that's how we're to be, to not be doing the expected, to do the unexpected. I still find these verses challenging. I personally regard this as the toughest verses in the Bible for me, to actually have that attitude, to have that heart, and to put that into action. It is that radical, but it's Jesus' command. Let's stop, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy to us. I thank you for your great love to us, your amazing forgiveness to us. And I just pray, Father, that you would give each of us your Holy Spirit so that we can live that out in our lives. We can live that out to others. Help us all to do the unexpected, Lord God. Equip us to know that strength to do that, Lord. It won't be easy, but please be with us, I pray. Equip us all in Jesus' name. Amen.